Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to be continuing our series uh, out of 1 Timothy. And if you're just joining with us, uh, the first Sunday of every month, the elders are walking through uh, the book of 1 Timothy, and we've been uh, traveling through uh, chapter 1 and also now chapter 2, and this morning we're going to be out of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 15. Now, some of you um, possibly have already seen in your bulletin, as we just read, um, maybe you read that, and you may know what's a little bit what's in store uh, this morning. And I was thinking of an interesting title for today's message, such as, Let the Fireworks Begin, or... Don't shoot, I'm just the messenger, okay? But I think it's best to keep it simple as uh, God's instructions for women in the church. So we're going to look here at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. Let's read the text. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls of costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Teaching on these kinds of things is never easy, and I would think by now that our time together, that you know that I do not preach on hobby horses that uh, as we go through Scripture, whatever the Scripture is going to talk about, that's what we're going to talk about. And I would also say that uh, there are many churches or pastors that do not want to teach on things like this because uh, they might fear that the people might get upset or they might uh, get uh, um, in a way where they, they have an uh, animosity towards the speaker. But uh, I want to let you know that I didn't write the Bible, okay? God himself did not even ask me about uh, what, what should be in the Bible. But uh, there is a chance that as we go through some of these things that some of you might get a little upset and uh, you might walk out. It was kind of interesting. Uh, Linda sent me an email this morning. And she said, hey, I just want to let you know we're going to have to leave a little early, and so we're not leaving because we're going to be disgruntled. Uh, She says, we've got to go pick up our Amish neighbor and take them to the hospital. And uh, so, okay, thank you for letting me know, Linda. I really appreciate that, okay? 
But uh, as we're going to walk through uh, these things here, um, my prayer for us as a church this morning is that we would not allow our feelings or our preferences or what the norm of the culture is to dictate what the Word of God clearly teaches. And if I could have written this section myself, I would not have uh, written it this way that Paul did. But being a Christian doesn't mean that we like everything that's written in God's Word. We submit to it. You see, I think many times when we come to passages like this, we may say, well, I don't really agree with that. I don't think that that's the way it should be. And so in order to uh, uh, make ourselves feel better about a passage like that, we say, well, I'm just not going to believe that part. But that's not what a Christian is. A Christian submits to apostolic doctrine, regardless if we like it or not. It's obedience to the Word of God, irregardless of our feelings of how we may feel about something like that. So today I'm not here to tell you so much as what I think, but what God's Word teaches on this uh, very significant and I believe important uh, topic. And I just want to kind of get out of the way and allow Scripture to speak for itself Uh, This text is a hard and difficult one, and you'll see that as we kind of work our way through it. And there's lots of books that have been written to promote the quote-unquote evangelical uh, um, feminism movement. Uh, Many denominations have caved into this right now. The Southern Baptist Convention is having conversations a lot about kind of what we're going to be talking about here this morning. And um, this text, I believe, is very clear on the role of women in the church. Now, let me give you a little background here. Paul was talking to Timothy and trying to correct some things that were going on in the uh, church at Ephesus. And the church at Ephesus, uh, there was false teachers in this church. Um, They were stirring up trouble, and they had led really astray a number of women in the church both in their doctrine and in their morals. In fact, if you can remember, uh, one of the things that uh, uh, one of the other elders went through talking about was out of uh, 1 Timothy uh, 1.19. He talks about holding faith and a good conscience. And so these people were being led astray, and Paul tells Timothy, no, Timothy, you need to hold on to faith, hold on to the doctrine, and also a good conscience, those are your morals. And so many in this church were being led astray from their doctrine and from good morals, and Paul's trying to correct that and instruct Timothy in how to do that. Ephesus was a very sensual city. It was really the center of worship of the goddess Diana or Artemis. Um, and the idol that was set up there in the temple, it was, a, uh, it was an idol that had multiple breasts. And so uh, there was, it was very sensual in that city. And uh, in fact, even there in the temple, um, they practiced all kinds of sort of uh, temple prostitution. Um, they practiced open sensuality. And it was also a, a city of commerce. So if, you, if you see where Ephesus was, now known as uh, modern-day Turkey, um, it, was a, it was a large port. And so there was a lot of commerce that was coming in, a very wealthy city. And so you can kind of see how the pressures of the culture, uh, even with the, uh, the temple worship there, the goddess Diana, and also the city going on there, how those pressures of the culture uh, were infecting the life of the church there. 
Apparently, some of the women in the Ephesian church there were dressing in a sensuous manner, in a luxurious manner. So Paul corrects this by telling Timothy how godly women should adorn themselves. You'll see that in verses 9 and 10. Then in verses 11 through 15, Paul deals with this attitude that women are to have in the church in submission uh, to men. In 2 Timothy, we see in uh, verses, uh, uh, chapter 3, verses 6 through 7, uh, Paul mentions here about false teachers who have entered into households and captivated weak women, and they've, they're weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so false teachers were appealing to women who were under a load of guilt, uh, obviously because of sensuality, obviously because of, of certain things that were going on, they were allowing to come into their lives, they were no longer holding to uh, good doctrine and good morals. And Paul says these false teachers have led away these women, and obviously I know that Second um, Timothy uh, was written after First Timothy, but I believe that a lot of the things that, Timothy was, that Paul was dealing with in First Timothy in seed form, uh, we see later played out uh, in Second Timothy there. So we have this whole thing about uh, the importance of, of, of them following what Scripture says, and, and, and Paul is going to kind of lay out for them and says, okay, this is the instructions for women in the church and how they are to behave and uh, what God desires for them. And uh, you see this, that you know, women in the local assembly, is, it, the, the purpose of them is not to be in a, in a form of teaching or exercising authority. Rather, their normal sphere of ministry should be in the home. And Paul makes a, a clear uh, uh, talking about this. He, he, he deals with this. He talks about it there in uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, but he also mentions it in uh, 1 Timothy 5, uh, verses 11 through 15. He talks about, but refuse to enroll your to younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, incurring condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips, busybodies saying what they should not. And he says, so I would rather have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households. So see, there it is. He says, this is what uh, the role of women should be, uh, should be in the home. And then he also mentions that, we see that also in Titus chapter 2, verses uh, 3 through 5. He repeats that same thing. So if we were going to kind of sum up kind of what we're going to be looking at here this morning, uh, Paul says women in the church should be marked by two qualities. One of them is godliness. We see that in verses 9 through 10 as he deals with the proper attire of women, but then also submission to male leadership in verses 11 through 15, and he deals with the attitude of women in the church. And so this is what I'd like for you to take away with you this morning. If you profess Christ, if you profess faith in Christ, let your life be marked by godliness and submission to male leadership. So let's take note here a couple things. First of all, number one, God's instructions for what women wear. You know, what we wear and how we present ourselves says a lot about what we believe and what we hold to. Um, you know, if a woman dresses in a sensuous manner or if she places excessive attention to grooming, 
she is emphasizing external beauty. And that's kind of like what Paul talks about here. He says, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, Paul is not saying that women cannot wear jewelry. Paul is not saying that women can braid their hair, okay? He's not saying any of that. There's a lot of... Uh, of churches sometimes that kind of like to jump on this and they say, okay, that's it. Nope, you can't wear jewelry. You can't braid your hair. You can't do any of that, right? And they kind of, the women kind of end up looking a little homely, right? He's not talking about that here, okay? He is talking about the fact that there doesn't need to be an emphasis placed on the external. Rather, it should be placed on the internal. What? Godliness, okay? And, um, my wife and I, we, we attended a church uh, before we, we came here. I was a youth pastor there for nine years, an assistant pastor there for nine years. And uh, the pastor that we worked for there, he placed a huge emphasis on what women should be wearing. And um, sad to say, um, it doesn't say anything here that only women should just wear dresses and skirts. It doesn't say that, okay? Um, he says that it needs to be modest, but also, he says, there needs to be an emphasis placed on the internal, not the external. And if you can remember here, again, here in Ephesus, in this church, uh, a very uh, wealthy city. So there was a huge push on women dressing in a luxurious manner. Um, it was uh, many times also because it was a very sensual city, there was a lot of the dress that was placed on a sensual, seductive type of matter. And uh, Paul says, no, uh, women should not be doing that. Rather, she should put her emphasis on good deeds. And uh, obviously here, he's talking about women's appearance, not only when she attends church, but at all times. And so he's not prohibiting them from looking attractive, but rather placing the emphasis where it should be. And notice what he says here, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And that's the emphasis that uh, he was placing on there. Now, take note of the words here, modesty. In the original, it means to be free from shame. It's, then you see that word there, self-control. Your translation may read discreetly. It means to have control over one's passions. You know, many fashions of our day are very shameful and very seductive. Uh, they are designed to attract attention to the body and to arouse lust. Uh, men who uh, look at uh, pornographic images, uh, they, are not, they are sold on the image of that woman. They are not looking at that woman because they're wanting to get to know her character. Uh, they are attracted to that. That's the way that God has wired men. Uh, we are attracted by sight, and that's the reason why those things sell. And so... You know, I think the emphasis here, and I, and I don't really see that a lot of that here in this church, and I'm really thankful for that, but, you know, the emphasis here, and I, and I want to speak to our Christian ladies here, that if there is if there's any doubt at all of what you're wearing, that it might be immodest or it might be seductive, you just need to say, okay, I don't think I should, all right? Because you've got to remember, you're, you're being around the eyes of other Christian men, and you don't want to put that stumbling block in. You might say, well, you know, Mike, they're Christians. They should not be doing that. Yes, you're absolutely right. And men, um, God places the emphasis on us. He places the blame on us 
to lusting after a woman, okay? It's not the woman's fault, it's our fault, okay? And so we need to make sure that we're working together in that and uh, not doing that. So we got to make sure that we do that. Um, just make sure your dress is free from shame and exercises self-control. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And so Paul's instruction is that Christian women must dress properly and put their emphasis on the character qualities of godliness and good works. Well, that wasn't too bad, was it? Okay. Now let's move into something that's a little bit more controversial here. Okay. Now remember, don't shoot. Okay. I'm just the messenger. All right. Here's the second thing. God's instructions for a woman's attitude. The verse here says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, beginning here in verse number 11, Paul is going to uh, talk about the proper attitude of Christian women. They are not to be assertive, but submissive to male leadership. Now, keep in mind here, I didn't make up this script, okay? I'm just here to read it, explain it. And like it or not, the Bible is not politi politically correct. Meaning, our culture goes down a certain direction, and because we live in the culture that we live in, the church many times gets kind of swept up in that culture. And so just because the culture says certain things or acts a certain way or does a certain thing, uh, the Bible stands like an oak. It stands there and it's going against the grain of the culture. And we as believers in Christ, our attitude should be, even though the culture may say that these things are acceptable and this is what we should do, this is how we should live, we should stand where Scripture stands. We should stand with an emphasis and place an emphasis on the things that Scripture places an emphasis on. Why? Because even though if the world hates us, we got to remember, we're not here to please the world. We're here to please God. And so we have to take a stand where Scripture takes a stand on things like this. And so God's Word stands there against it often, and it says no. And that is not the way to live, but rather we should live this way. And if we're going to be faithful followers of Jesus, then we have to be counterculture. Um, and on the issue of women in the church, this is one area where the Bible is counter-American culture. Also, there are many truths in the Bible that are in balance, and you have to hold them both in tension, okay? Uh, even though they may seem contradictory or paradoxical, you've got to hold both of them in tension, and you've got to look at both of them, because if you go with just one side and you say, well, Scripture says this, and you throw out everything else that Scripture says about it, then you're wrong. But then also on the other side, if you hold just to this one side and you neglect the other side over there, you're wrong also. You've got to hold both of them in tension. And you'll see this uh, kind of as we work through our, way through our passage here uh, in this. Now, when it comes to the roles of men and women... The Bible is very clear here that there is this same balance, okay? 
One, on one end, both male and female reflect the image of God. We see that clearly in Genesis uh, 1.27. This means that men are not superior over women, nor women over men. We're both made in the image of God. Not one is superior to the other. Neither sex is superior to the other. We are different. Uh, in Christ, is what Galatians 3.28 teaches us, that men and women are equal. In Christ, there is neither male or female, but Scripture also teaches at the same time that they are to fulfill different roles. Often in Scripture, the male-female relationship is a picture, really, of the divine human relationship. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 25, you don't have to necessarily turn there um, unless you don't really know it. But we've, we've talked a lot about this in Ephesians 5, about uh, the relationship between husband and wife. And Paul goes on, and he talks about, okay, uh, there needs to be a mutual submission. We see that in verse 21, as they're both submitting to one another. And then in, uh, we later see that uh, the, the wife is supposed to be submitting to her husbands, just as the, as, as the church submits to Christ. And then we see the husband's part, right? The husband is supposed to love his wife. And, and he's supposed to uh, sacrifice just the same way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. And then Paul later on goes and he says, all right, now listen, I'm not talking about husband and wife here. He says, I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about the relationship that, that God has with, uh, the, the, God the Father has with God the Son. And so we see that relationship. And so in this way, we reflect the image of God in which the Son is equal to the Father and yet voluntarily submits to Him, and the Father loves the Son. We also reflect the relationship of Christ to His church in which He accepts us as His brothers and sisters, and yet we are to submit to Him. Paul teaches both in our text and also in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses uh, 3 through 16, that there is also to be a gender-based hierarchy in the context of equality in the local church. And so it would be wrong to emphasize the hierarchy and neglect equality. It is equally wrong to emphasize equality and throw out the form of hierarchy. So you have to hold both of them in tension because they're in balance to one another. In many of the denominations, there are evangelical feminists that try to explain the hierarchy as a cultural thing. They say things like, well, during that day, Paul was a male chauvinist, and you know, he wrote this way because that's the way he grew up, and that's the way he wanted to do things. Well, I'm sorry, that's not true, uh, because you'll see as we look in our text here that Paul was not for that. What's interesting to note here is that every time Paul mentions the subject about the roles, he appeals to the Old Testament not to some cultural factor for support. So it's a serious error in my judgment to take a verse such as Galatians 3.28 where it says neither is there male nor female and to take that and then to reinterpret all of Scripture through the lens of that. To say, well, see, Paul says that there's neither male nor female, so it's okay for women to hold certain roles and fulfill certain roles because there's neither male nor female in Christ. No, that's not true. You're in air when you do something like that. You've got to hold both of them uh, in tension. Um, 
So we need to affirm both aspects of the, of the truth. Now, in our text, Paul is going to describe in detail what submission is and how women are to behave in the church. Look at verses 11 through 12 here. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. So he talks about, uh, he's going to give us this realm of submission. And then in verse 13 through 14, he's going to give us the reasons for this submission. So let's first of all notice the realm of submission. This involves activities where a woman would exercise authority over a man. So he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. So Paul is speaking here about the church, not the home. Although, as mentioned, women are to be subject to their husbands in the home. It is significant that Paul directs the women to learn. You get that? Look what he says. Let a woman what? Learn quietly. This is how I know that Paul was not some kind of male chauvinist. Because actually in the Jewish culture, women were not allowed to learn. In fact, a, 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 Jew, a, a man who was Jewish would oftentimes in his prayers, he would say, Lord, I thank you that I am neither a Gentile nor a woman. That's the reality of it. But here, Paul, what is he doing? He's advocating for women to actually learn. And he's saying, I want women to learn. And so he says, I want you to learn. I want you to learn what, what Scripture says, what God's Word says. And Paul wants women to learn as long as their attitude is marked by two qualities. Notice in our text, quietness and submissiveness. Now, that word translated quietly doesn't mean absolute silence, but rather to have inner tranquility or peace. It's the same word uh, that we see in 1 Timothy 2.2, where he says for kings, uh, that we're supposed to be making prayers, supplication, intercessions, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Inner tranquility, inner peace. And so women are not to be agitated, assertive, rebel rousers in the church. And then notice the word here, submissiveness. It's a military word, meaning under rank. A lieutenant and a sergeant are equal in personhood, but they have different ranks. Um, how many of you ever watched the uh, series Band of Brothers? Did you guys watch that? Okay, great. One of you. Awesome. John, we'll have to get together and have a Band of Brothers watch party. Okay. So those of you that don't know what that is, um, HBO did a series on um, basically the Second World War, and it covered the guys that were going to be going um, to different parts and fighting in the war. And during this time, uh, there's the guy, I uh, can't remember his name. His name is David Schwimmer. You guys may know from that thing, The Friends. Remember the TV show Friends? Okay. <laughs> Captain Sobel, thank you. Yes. Okay, so Captain Sobel, he's over there. And uh, he's making it hard on the, on, on the guys in his platoon. And uh, what ends up happening is one of the guys in his platoon rises to a higher rank than him. And that Captain Sobel guy is not happy about it. And they're out in the field one day, and Captain Sobel comes walking through. And uh, the, the guy that rose to a higher rank, he's a lieutenant. And he salutes. Captain Sobel does not salute. And he calls him out on it, and he says, Captain Sobel, Captain Sobel. And he says, we salute the rank, not the man. 
And that's exactly what God has done. He has placed a hierarchy. We're all equal, okay? But he's placed a hierarchy of gender-based roles. And so when we are submitting, we are bringing ourselves under rank of what God has put in place. So even so, women are to put themselves in rank under men in church leadership. Paul adds the words, notice what he says here, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. In other words, this is to show that it is more than outward obedience. The attitude of respect is included inwardly, okay? Not grumbling and complaining, just doing it. You know, there are many times that I can remember growing up, my parents would ask me to do something, and I would do it, but I would do it with a grumbling and complaining attitude. Is that really submitting? No, it's not. You may be doing it on the outward form, but on the inward, you're not really submitting. So... It's important that the implied object of their submission here is church leaders, elders, who teach sound doctrine, because later on we see that within the context in uh, 1 Timothy 3. Now let me add here also that the elders of this church are never to uh, usurp the authority of the husband in the home. Uh, Previous church that uh, my wife and I were a part of, um, you know, the pastor there, he decided that, uh, you know, we had to do a certain thing according to dress standards. And basically, he told me, he says, uh, I get to tell you what your wife is allowed to wear and what she can't wear. And then he further on went to say and said, okay, um, I, the only thing that I'm not going to tell you what your wife can wear is what she can wear to bed. That's weird, right? Okay. Alarms start going off, uh-oh, uh-oh, I think I'm in a cult, uh-oh, right, okay? So, you know, it's very important to, to remember, husbands, okay, you're the leader of your home, okay? And even though we have a church setting here, and we have elders here, we are to be submitting towards one another, but if an elder, myself or any of the other elders, ever say something, okay, that goes against what you as a family has set up, okay, you are not to sit there and say, well, you know what, we're going to do this, or uh, my wife needs to do this, she needs to listen. No, okay. Wives, you need to listen to your husbands, okay? They are the God-ordained authority that has been placed in the home in your life, okay? So just make sure uh, that we remember that. Now take note of the word here, exercise authority, This is used only here in the New Testament and has the nuance of usurping authority or being domineering. Apparently, some of the Ephesian women had taken a seminar on assertiveness training and were applying it by teaching even the men in the worship assembly. And so Paul is prohibiting this since he shows in uh, in verses 13 through 14, it violates God's pattern of authority and submission as pictured in the creation and the fall. Now, I realize that Paul opens really a a host of questions here, you know, uh, which uh, he leaves unanswered. You know, can women teach men in a home Bible study? 
Remember in the early church, uh, uh, they all met in homes. What about Sunday school classes? What about the role of women in parachurch ministries? Can they be in leadership positions over men? Uh, what about a woman teaching as long as she is in submission to male elders? What about a woman teaching through writing books or teaching a man individually as Priscilla and Aquila did with Apollos, as we see in uh, Acts uh, 18.26? What about the noteworthy exceptions in Scripture, such as Deborah and uh, Huldiah and Janiah? What about the many godly and, and effective women missionaries down through church history? I can't begin to even really answer all those questions. But I can give several principles that I, I believe apply to the church here, okay? First, the office of elder is limited to men. That's it. The qualifications are given to men and always where you find elders mentioned in the New Testament. It is in reference to males. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, Titus 1, uh, 5 through 9. Always assume male elders. And in every New Testament instance, elders are men and also... Jesus chose men as apostles with authority over the church. This means that the office of teaching elder is restricted to men. Now notice also the word in our text, teach. That is used a hundred times in the New Testament. And in only three instances does it refer to one-on-one -on -one teaching individuals. So Paul is referring here to a woman teaching a large group, and he was probably thinking of situations where women were teaching a large group in the church. And so he says this prohibition of this is it should not be this way. And it's very clear is what he says. And so a woman should not teach men, nor should she do anything else to exercise authority over men. That is the realm of of that submission. So does Paul mean that a godly woman can never teach men? I think we really need to be careful here not to put God in our doctrinal boxes because many times God has a way of breaking out of those and proving us wrong. Okay? He's perfectly uh, acceptable in, in, in doing whatever he pleases. There are many noteworthy, exceptional women in Scripture uh, that show us that God has done something through them. We see that, okay? But I believe what's important to remember is the exceptions, as well as the plain teaching of passages such as our text here, is that those are the exceptions. Those are never the norm. The norm should be that there is male leadership, and male leadership is the ones that are teaching. Now, is God capable of doing things? Absolutely he is. But those are exceptions, and those exceptions are very, very few, as we see that's even in Scripture. So I believe that if God does raise up a gifted woman, we ought to recognize her ministry, but even so, she will have an attitude of submission to male leadership, and she will focus on teaching women. Uh, here's the second thing that Paul now gives us, the reasons for submission. Look what he says here, verses 13 through 14. The reasons are because of the order of creation and the fall that happened. Now notice what he says here. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now it's compelling that every single time that Paul cites reasons for gender-based distinctions in the church, he goes to the Old Testament we see that here in our text, but also he does that also in 1 Corinthians 11 and also in 1 Corinthians 14. 
Now, this means that we can't dismiss this as a cultural matter. Why? Because he goes all the way back to the Old Testament, and he's bringing it all the way back to, the, to creation itself. Have you ever wondered why God didn't create Adam and Eve simultaneously? I mean, he could have done it, right? I mean, it wouldn't have taken any more sweat for him to do it. But he created them separate. First, he formed Adam. Then, it says, Eve. He didn't create them together as one. He created Adam, and later he created Eve to be a helper for Adam, not vice versa. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 11.9, For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, although many times I tend to think that, right? I'm just so sick, Jamie. Can you please help me? (laughs) We were telling stories the other day about uh, Jamie going into labor. And when she was in labor, I was sick. And I was rendered useless. I mean, totally useless. And um, it it was kind of interesting. I I mean, I was having a hard time, but, you know, my wife was having a a, a worse time than me. But I felt like I was really having a hard time. But, uh, yeah. So he says, for indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Thus, while being equal with Adam as an image bearer of God, Eve was yet to be subject to Adam as the order that God put in place. Because of that, their relationship reflected the image of God in his relationship to his creation. So Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 2.13 that the order in creation should be reflected in the church. Man first, then woman. It's not because man is more important than woman, because we're equal. We're holding these both in tension. It's just because that is the God-designed order that God has put in place. And I should also add that if, you know, as men, if we believe that we are superior to women and we think, you know, we're going to put women in their place and all that, that's the wrong kind of attitude. That's not the right attitude. Uh, It tells us even as husbands that we are supposed to be cherishing our wives, that we are supposed to be helping them, treating them as the weaker vessel, not because they're not, because they're over there all weak and, you know, they can't do anything, but because God has created them. They are the china. We are the, uh, you know, we're the clay pot, okay? And we need to treat them as such, handling them, helping them. Then he adds here the order of the fall. Look what he says in verse 14, okay? And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. In that uh, creation story as we read it, um, Adam was there. He was present. He saw the whole thing going down. Adam did not do what he should be doing. Adam was not protecting his wife. Adam was not upholding the word of God, okay? Okay? Eve was deceived, but Adam was the transgressor there, okay? So Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became the transgressor. So we see here that he adds this order here. Now, Paul isn't implying that Adam was less guilty than Eve, nor is he putting all the blame on Eve. Both were participators in the fall, is what Romans 5.12 teaches us, uh, that uh, death passed upon all men because of that. So Paul here is implying that women are constitutionally more prone to deception. Is that true? No. He's not saying that. Because even in this church, 
There were false teachers that were leading astray both men and women. So all of us are prone to deception. So the Bible is clear that we are all easily deceived by sin and false doctrine, just as these believers were in this church. And so what Paul is getting at is that in the fall, the God-ordained roles were reversed. Satan didn't approach Adam, but rather Eve, so that he could upset the reflection of God's image in the original couple by enticing the woman to act independently of her husband and God's authority. So see, this is why it's important that we as a church, we reflect God's order and not go with what the culture says, because what are we doing? We're doing exactly what happened there in the garden. And we need to be reflecting God's, culture, God's order to our culture. Have you ever wondered and thought, here's God, he made Adam and Eve, who they were reflecting their image to? There's nobody else around. Who were they reflecting that image to? Who were they reflecting the order that God created to? The angels. And here is Satan. He is so upset about what has happened. And he says, I'm going to disrupt the order. And so what is it? He comes down and he gets Eve to act independently of her husband's authority and God's authority. And so thus disrupting the image there. So Paul is saying here that this role reversal that brought such awful consequences on the human race should not be repeated in the church. And the responsibility for teaching and leadership in the church falls on qualified men, as we see in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. So then how then can women serve in the church if they can't assume leadership and teaching roles over men? What can they do? Well, Paul goes on to show us in verse 15 that a woman's normal sphere of ministry is in the home. If she serves in her God-ordained role in the home, okay, she will receive her reward. And so let's look at the last thing here. God's instructions for women in professing salvation. Now, many commentators here call this verse here the most difficult verse in the New Testament to interpret. Let's read it. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, I'm not going to get into all the different uh, nuances of this verse here, but I want to give you some different ways that this verse is interpreted, and I'll show you the, di the differences between them. Number one, most people look at this and they say, well, women will be saved, meaning kept safe physically, through childbirth, in spite of the curse of the fall, meaning that if you are a godly woman, you will be kept safe during childbirth and won't die. Well, you can clearly see the problem with uh, that interpretation of that verse that way, right? Because there have been many godly women who have died in childbirth, okay? So we can't uh, consider that one. Second one is that women will be saved spiritually through childbearing, and they capitalize childbearing, making it to refer namely the birth of Christ. And they take it all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and show that how the promise was given to the woman that it was to be her seed that would bring salvation to the human race. The problem with this view is that uh, where Paul is meaning, as one Bible commentator said, that he could hardly have chosen a more obscure or ambiguous way of saying it. 
okay? So in other words, we're going all the way back to Genesis saying, okay, this is what it's got to mean, all right? Thirdly, women will be saved, meaning they will find fulfillment and significance from a lack of leadership roles in the church by bearing children and being models in the home. The problem with that view, it's a, it's a very weird understanding of the word saved, okay? Fourth view, women will be saved from the corruption of this sinful world if they assume their proper roles in the home. Now, this is a little closer to the truth, but it still doesn't grasp that normal meaning of that word saved or preserved there, okay? Now, here's the fifth view, and this is the one that I kind of hold to here, is that women will be saved spiritually with an emphasis on the future aspect of salvation, not on the past. Okay? If their lives show the fruit of saving faith, namely that they are in submission to God's order as evidenced by taking their proper role as godly mothers. Now, I like this view because the word saved there, as used in the pastoral epistles, is refused to refer to spiritual salvation, not to be kept safe. Now, you might be thinking, well, then, does that mean that women are saved spiritually by having children? No, that's not the case, because we know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, uh, every single person is saved by grace through faith. So what is he trying to say here? I believe that genuine saving faith always results in a life of good works and the development of godly character. And see, that's why we see that, that thing there. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And so see, our salvation is not yet realized, meaning it's still in the future as we are looking towards the future hope of our salvation. The hope of future salvation should motivate us to live a life of good deeds now in spite of the hardships, as in childbearing, even in that, okay? So the scriptures sometimes talk about our salvation in the future tense. And so we look at these character qualities as what he says. He says, if they continue in this, he says, then this will be the end result, is salvation realized in that. Um, and so he says, they continue in faith, love, and holiness in all of that. And an evidence of their salvation is their continuance in those things, and really holiness there, uh, self-control. It's the same word as discreetly in uh, 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 verse number 9. So Paul brings it really back in full circle here. Uh, he says, we began with, with self-control, and we're ending there uh, with self-control as well. Now, I've spent most of the message here explaining this kind of difficult text, but didn't really give you anything that's applicable, okay? Um, so... Let me give you three things real quickly about some application. Number one, check your attitude towards Scripture. Are you defiant or compliant? Even though this is what Scripture says, are we going to comply to what Scripture says, or are we going to be defiant and say, no, 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 no. Um, I got my own ideas, I got my own beliefs, and I'm going to do what I want to do, okay? Compliant or defiant. Secondly, check your attitude towards the opposite sex, competitive or cooperative. There should be no war between the sexes in the church, okay? We shouldn't be uh, in competition towards one another. We're supposed to be working together for the common goal of exalting Jesus Christ, living for Christ, encouraging one another uh, in the Lord. Um, Women that do have ministries in this church, we should esteem them and we should support them and help them, 
okay? So are we cooperating together or are we competing uh, with one another? Thirdly, check your attitude towards the home, a burden or a blessing. Children should never be viewed by Christian women as a hindrance to their fulfillment through a career. In other words, we ought to be looking at what God has given us and say, this is what God has given me. This is, this is something he has blessed me with. And so we shouldn't be looking and saying, well, I just, I can't really do what I really want to do because now I have a child, okay? No, it's a blessing from God. And so we need to have the correct attitude towards that. Well, there it is. That's the message. Hope you don't have any bullets in your gun, okay? Hope you're... Uh, Go on your way, all right? Um, I thank you so much for listening so well. And uh, I know these things are hard sometimes, just working through them and, and talking about them. But I believe if we follow God's instructions, it's always best, okay? Because God has instructions for us in, in how we are supposed to live and work in the church. But let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.